Hi, this is Jean Nathan. It is Crosstown Conversations. And um, we, as always, have some very interesting and informative guests. Um, so I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, some of them are fun and some of them have just really important information to share. We've done about, I don't know, close to 3,000 interviews now over the years. And I think um, people tend to appreciate the, the information they're getting from us. So here goes for today. Okay, I'm really excited to talk to you, Ashley Shelton. Very close to my heart. Um, I have a long history in political work, even though I have not been that engaged in it of late because I'm on a mission. I'm on a mission to grow in the investment and in and the support for our creative economy. Um, so that's my obsession. Uh, but I have worked in um, national uh, presidential politics and local politics and politics in New York and elsewhere. Um, and I have to tell you that uh, uh, we're going to get to who you are and what your organization is in just a second, the Power Coalition. And this is Ashley Shelton, who is at least a leader, if not a founder. She's going to tell us more about that. But um, I think I think it was in the mid '70s. I was a television reporter at the time at WDSU, and I remember remember that our state passed right to work legislation, mm -hmm. and I was kind of shocked because my image of Louisiana had been that it was, I think, pretty much the only union state in the South, union oriented state in the South, and so I kind of felt at home here, coming out of Yankee Land. I came out of originally the South Bronx and then Manhattan and the, the city of New York in 1972 is when I got here. So I was shocked and I said, okay, this is important. This is a bellwether. And it turned out to be worse than I thought. Um, and the outcome has been a very one-sided red state. Ultimately, it didn't happen Im immediately, but it has evolved that way. So I was kind of jealous watching what was going on in Georgia where, um, you know, Stacey Abrams is getting a lot of the credit, uh, but I've since learned that um, your organization has really been following a similar uh, flight plan or strategic plan for how you're trying to um, promote voting. And, and voting is totally essential to um, all kinds of political, social, economic development um, policy. So uh, with that introduction, um, Give me a little bit of a, a, give me a little preface about who you are and, and the organization and, and how it got came together and, and then let's get, get to it and what it does and, and um, what, what more we can do to get a little bit of purple into our state at least. No, for sure. Well, thanks for having me uh, again, Jane. And, um, you know, and I, I do uh, remember having the opportunity to work with you after Katrina and uh, trying to rebuild our, our city and our state. And so um, it's to you. I am Ashley Shelton, as you said, I'm the director of the uh, Power Coalition. And yes, I'm a founder. I, um, I always tell folks, um, I, I will never forget being at Panera with Nora Sanderson and Ming Wen um, and just talking about that we needed a pathway to power that, you know, ultimately as we did this work um, that, you know, we were winning here, there um, occasionally around different policies that we cared about, but we weren't actually moving the needle and, and realizing system change. 
And that also that- Here in the state of Louisiana, let me just make sure everybody knows we're talking yes, about Louisiana. Yes, yes. And so, um, and so we established the Power Coalition, which is a 501c3 table, which simply means that we work with the voter file to engage infrequent voters of color across the state um, and give them voice and help them reconnect to uh, what it means to have voice and power in their state. And so um, as of this last election cycle um, and at the end of 2020, I mean, we made almost 2 million voter contacts to infrequent voters of color. And so there, those were multiple contacts um, um, because we don't have 2 million, um, 2 million voters of color um, in the state, but multiple contacts to voters of color across the state um, and had the opportunity to continuously engage them in the civic engagement process, the powers of the folks that would be on the ballot, um, access to additional information about what was specifically gonna be happening in their communities. You know, we had DA's races around the state this year. Um, um, New Orleans certainly being the, the biggest of those races, but, you know, making sure the folks were engaged, mayoral races in Baton Rouge, and so we were, we were busy, and so um, much like what we saw in um, in Georgia, uh, we there were an additional 30,000 uh, voters of color that were registered for this year. Um, very excited to um, say that 13% of them were um, the, between the ages of 18 and 25. So we saw an uptick in our young voters. Um, and then- um, that's in um, voter registration of folks aged 18 to 25. What percentage? And, oh, it was uh, 13, it's like 12.8%. And so almost 13% um, new, you know, of that large, you know, like of that number of new voters, um, they were young people. And so we saw our young people getting engaged and, um, you know, really excited about that work. And then, you know, and also too, being able to see the, um, you know, like the difference that our work, you know, like the, the the work makes when we know that, you know, these campaigns are not talking to, you know, infrequent voters of color, you know, they focus on chronic voters, many of them focus on chronic voters, because they don't have the resources to, um, you know, to um, reach out to a broader, you know, community of voters. And for us, it's been really important to ensure that all of the, the, the voices of voters of color across the state are included. We, Louisiana has the second largest black population proportionally in the country. So about 32% of our population is African-American. Um, we also work with our Latinx, um, uh, Asian Pacific Islander and native communities as well so that their voices can be heard. And we saw increases both in our work in 2019 and in 2020 um, in their participation in the voter process. And so, you know, in fact, um, I have a fun fact that, um, you know, that proportionally more black voters turned out in December for the runoff than white voters. So uh, about 17.8% of black voters turned out and 17 17.2% of white voters respectively turned out. And so to be able to see that, you know, the work that we're doing is having an impact. Um, and we've also seen continuous growth. We've done three years of statewide, you know, kind of campaigns. We started in 2018, supporting and bottom lining the work of vote around uh, the Amendment 2 um, campaign that received 64% support to end the egregious practice of non-unanimous juries. And then we've built on that in 2019 for our statewide election. And so we've seen a continuous growth um, of the participation of black and brown voters across the state. And, um, you know, we're really proud to be able to see that continuous sustained growth. And that for the most part, you know, black voters are voting on par with um, their white counterparts. And that's, um, and that's not typical. And so we know that our work is uh, making a difference. 
How do you account for the um, the change and <clears throat> the increase in voters? What, what what about your strategies of reaching them has been? Do you think the most critical factors um, in in getting uh, getting them out to the polls? You know, I think, um, you know, certainly in 2018 and 2019, we were having organizing conversations on the doors, you know, like not just the kind of knock and, and drop uh, literature, but really talking to people about what was happening in their community, what mattered to them. And I think that, you know, we heard so often that, you know, I mean, even, at, you know, even as recent as last year, you know, there was a, um, an older woman in Bossier Parish who said that the we were the first people to ever knock on her door and ask her what mattered to her and what was important to her her. And even though she has voted her entire life, she said it mattered that somebody even cared what she wanted, right? And so making those deeper connections. But I think also too, we know that it typically takes three to five touches to actually move someone to action. Um, and so we've consistently at this point been talking to, you know, you know, black and brown voters across the state um, for the last five years. And there's been a, a consistency in building and deepening those relationships. And so we don't just talk to folks during election time. We also do listening sessions across the state where we're trying to understand like, what are those issues? And then we also, you know, move policy um, and legislation during, um, you know, legislative session to be able to provide policy solutions to the things that we're hearing. And, you know, a perfect example of that is around fines and fees. Um, we were hearing from folks that their driver's license was being suspended for inability to pay fines and fees. And we know that this fines and fee process keeps people trapped in criminalization and poverty. And so we were able to work with Tanner McGee and vote and many others to end that practice because a suspended driver's license means you can't vote and it also means you can't pass a background check for a job and so we, we, we ended that practice and now I'm really excited to say that you know we are working to present this legislative session an ability to pay framework so that we are not trapping people in a process where um, you know our, our municipal courts are funded on the backs of poor black people and so I think um, you know we're you know we hear the problems and we are working towards those solutions. Um, you know, vote one of our found, uh, founding members and anchor partners, you know, was sweeping criminal justice reform. You know, they re-enfranchised over 70,000, you know, formerly incarcerated people with the right to vote. Um, and in one of the most incarcerated places in the world, it matters when you can give people and you can re-enfranchise people and give them back their, their voice and their vote. How many people? Um, 70,000. So, uh, and Wait, so anyone thousand not incarcerated, no, formerly incarcerated people. Formerly. So, yes, so formerly incarcerated, 70,000. Uh, wow, yes, so and then given the you know, given the law and the way that it was written, about 30,000 of that number is eligible right now, and then vote continues to work with um, the balance, um, you know, of, of you know, formerly incarcerated people to make sure that they can access their right to vote and walk them through that process. I mean, uh, Chico Yancey on their team, Chico will walk you through the process. He will go um, hand in hand um, to all of the offices that you need to go to, to make sure that you're re-enfranchised and you have your access to your vote. And so, um, you know, and so I think it's those things where, you know, we are talking to community 
um, and then responding and fighting for the things that they that they say matter to them. And so I think that it's not just the election. Um, you know, we're we're asking you to vote, um, and then you don't hear from us again. We're asking you to vote. We're engaging with you year round. Um, I I literally just did a, a segment on the news about a civic engagement uh, New Year's resolution that you know we always think about getting organized, getting healthy. Um, and you know what I remind folks is that you know civic engagement actually determines your health probably as much as anything else. Um, we've seen with the pandemic that elected leaders are making, you know, key decisions about our quality of life, our access to health care, um, you know, the, the economic impacts of this virus and whether or not, you know, the government is going to respond so that um, that we aren't, you know, facing not only a foreclosure, you know, a, um, an eviction crisis, but also a foreclosure crisis. Like how- And then also addressing uh, some of the less obvious uh, but very deeply affecting uh, factors of quality of life that have contributed to health issues, such as living in high pollution areas and the connection between high pollution and um, health vulnerability uh, is the kind of thing that most people don't think about. I mean, I think that was, we kind of knew that there was a connection between obviously pollution and bad health, but to see it in, in, in the numbers that were turned up during the pandemic, was fascinating. And, and, and actually that goes to one of the issues that I'm very conscious of and, and, and the way crisis can lead to change. And so we're in a crisis with the pandemic and uh, social justice issues um, that, that were triggered or highlighted um, by the death of certain uh, black people that didn't deserve to be um, killed in the process of um, uh, police action. Um, but uh, I think that um, when we come out, as we begin to emerge out of this pandemic period, we have opportunities to really change certain things dramatically. So I want to go to how you're thinking about that. But before I do that, I just want to, you know, uh, address the uh, the long-standing principle of nothing in this world is new. So I worked for Bobby Kennedy. Oh uh, my God, I think that was 1968. And um, there was a technique of door knocking that had been developed really in the McCarthy campaign, which triggered Bobby Kennedy to run. When he saw that McCarthy could get the votes he got, quite frankly, he jumped in. And um, it's called issue canvassing. And what we did at the door, we, we had three basic questions that we had uh, developed as a result of earlier communications and polling. And we posed those questions to the people at the door and we had answers for where our candidates stood on those issues. And that was a very important part of the strategy for uh, winning the state of Indiana where I worked for Bobby Kennedy, which was his first state. And unfortunately, two states later, he was gone. But in the meantime, um, we had demonstrated the value of that particular technique. So it sounds very similar to what you're talking about. It was maybe a little bit more arbitrary in the way it was set up, but um, that way. Anyway, going forward, um, as you are busy doing voter registration and getting people out to vote, um, motivating them, and I assume you're involved with the get out the vote on election day efforts as well, um, there, the, there are those interests that are also working in voter suppression. And those techniques of voter suppression are um, some of them old, some of them new, but they are also very dynamic and forceful. And so 
give me a picture of how you are balancing what you're trying to do versus what the forces of voter suppression are trying to do. You know, I think that, you know, I always tell folks there are a lot of tools in the um, in the toolbox of, of, of civic change and, and systemic change. And so actually, you know, we won a voting rights lawsuit against the Secretary of State. Um, and I was very proud to say that the governor stood with us in that lawsuit because the emergency voting plan that was presented by the um, Secretary of State did not include the COVID protections that were provided in the presidential primary for the general. And you know, and what we knew was that our numbers were higher at the time um, than they had ever been. And, um, you know, and as hard as, you know, government was working to get those numbers down, you know, people needed safe ways to access their right to vote. And so that lawsuit, we were successful in not only um, um, allowing the COVID reasons to request an absentee ballot to stand, but we also were able to extend early voting by three days. And what we know is what we know now is that that, that extension of three days, um, we saw record early voting. Um, Thirty percent of all Black voters early voted in that general, you know, presidential general election um, in November. And so we know that you know not only did it work, but we also saw the lines and we saw the you know we saw some of the 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 failures of the system um you know like jefferson parish not having enough voting machines while you know 200 people stood outside um trying to access their vote and um working with the registrar and the secretary of state to ameliorate some of those issues so i mean and so yes um you know we so you know like voter suppression looks I, like be, before you go before you pass that point you talk very fast i'm not gonna right. let you uh, move on for a second you worked with the secretary of state to improve the voting machine access? Is that what I heard? I mean, yes. I, I, I interpreted it uh, specifically, but is that right? Um, I mean, it, so what it was more like was that, you know, I think everybody was kind of passing the buck around what was going on in Jefferson Parish. And I think, it, you know, not, not I think, I mean, the registrar came out on the record and just said, we requested more machines. We requested to be able to use the Alario Center. Um, you know, the Secretary of State then said that they had made those requests too late. Um, and then, um, you know, it came out that they did not have enough machines. And so, you know, and so through, you know, through organizing and, and media, um, we were, they were able to get additional machines. And so I don't, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to be disingenuous. We didn't work with the Secretary of State to make that happen. We organized to um, shed light on the fact that um, there nothing was going to be done about those long lines if there were no additional machines so that the lines could indeed move faster. So you basically, I would have to describe your techniques as being very specific to um, issues that are retarding the vote in some way. You also mentioned that um, with a three days extension, you were able to see a, a, a significant jump in um, voting. Do you know that those that the voting literally during those three days made a big difference? 
We do. Like I said, I mean, it's, um, you know, that 30% of black voters that early voted um, during the early voting period, it is the highest percentage of black voter early voting turnout in the history of the state. So it's so, you know, um, one of the things that we pride ourselves on is that we do have the voter file and um, we do actually have data. Right. So when I when I you know, when I give you numbers, we're you know, like we are mining the data to really know the impact of our work. And so, you know, when um, so based on that early voting turnout, um, like I said, we saw those record numbers um, and those, you know, again, um, it clearly those three additional days um, were needed and, you know, and certainly credited for, um, you know, seeing, like I said, unprecedented early voting turnout. And it wasn't just black voters, but also, um, you know, also white, Latinx and, and Asian Pacific Islander as well. So let's go forward. Um, two things about going forward. One, um, again, uh, one can assume um, continued efforts to suppress the vote. Um, that that's part of the uh, of the survival strategies of um, people who are worried about uh, um, folks of different persuasions um, outvoting them. Um, secondly, there's the question of what are the issues going forward that you are going to focus on. So the, the, the and what what are you planning to focus on? But also, what if somebody has an issue that they would like to bring to you? So I'm very concerned about gaining greater support and understanding on the part of people in government at all levels for the importance of our our cultural producers and artists and culture bearers and and the role that they play in our economy. Um, we, we certainly recognize their importance in, in quality of life and in the uniqueness of our history and our culture and so on, but they're also very important to our economic life. And if we were to actually focus more on supporting them, growing them, maybe we wouldn't be so dependent on an old form of economic development, petrochemical, that is it's going to go down. It's 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 a it's a dying industry, and renewable energy is, I'm sure, on your agenda, and it's and it's going to increase in importance. But I'm I'm particularly interested in trying to uh, have a better understanding and appreciation for our creatives as a source of economic development. Is that the kind of thing I could come to? Can I call on you in your office and say, um, will you take this up? Yeah. Does that, does that happen, or do you have a kind of internal? decision-making process that arrives at the issues you're going to focus on? You know, so it's it's a both and, right? I mean, I think that, you know, at the end of the day, if there are capacities that we can provide to any issue area, um, then that's what we do. We, we, you know, we work really closely with Ashe um, and, you know, and have taken on several issues in community, understanding and making sure that that artistic and creative voice was a part of different processes. And so I think that, you know, so yes, I mean, you know, you can come to the Power Coalition and talk to us about, you know, any issue and, you know, depending on our own capacity, um, we're happy to help. I think that there are other things that if there are like actual issue-based campaigns that folks want to build out, you know, we're here to work and support that as well um, and trying to figure it out. And so part of it is, is that, yes, you know, people can bring us things but we're more here to support and engage and enable those folks to really lead that work. Um, and we have, and we can do things like training, uh, provide, you know, some additional um, mini grants or grant support, um, you know, like we're here to actually build capacity. And so, for example, you mentioned 
um, you know, the, the petrochemical industry, you know, we are now working with the Louisiana Bucket Brigade to really, you know, strengthen and grow the power of um, groups um, led by people of color along the river parishes. And we're super excited about that work. And some of that work looks like grant writing. And some of that work is really about, you know, like, how do we build the kind of infrastructure that will allow them to win? And so we're now thinking about what are their questions for the candidate survey for the um, the upcoming congressional race for congressional district two, which they are part of. And typically in that district, there's a fight between New Orleans and Baton Rouge about what the leadership will be but the river parishes want their want a leader that will respond to their issues, and so um so absolutely I mean we like I said we don't have you know we have a good team, a solid team, and so we we are honest about what we have the capacity to do, but then also too we also have access to other resources and partners that may be able to help um, move that issue along, and so part of it is you know, what are you trying to do and how can we support you build your capacity to do that? And then other things are just bigger, right? And they, it is an issue-based campaign. And so how can we help you build out that campaign so that it's successful and achieves its goals um, and um, and then bring our, our partners to bear? Because I think that one of the things that we've done well is, you know, our table is anchored by, you know, by um, organizations that have a base um, which means a, you know, a base of support of directly impacted people, but then also to deep content knowledge of each of the issue areas. So whether it's vote looking at criminal justice or Greater New Orleans Housing um, Association looking at housing and then ho Housing Louisiana, their larger statewide group, um, or whether it's women with a vision looking at reproductive justice from the perspective of women of color, um, where the question is more about access to healthcare and the right to even have your baby versus you know, like the kind of one-sided conversation we typically think of when we hear those words. And so we use that, you know, we look at the intersectionality of these issues to be able to really find, you know, kind of, you know, complex solutions that, um, you know, that that move us forward and actually, in, you know, end up in system change. And so, yes, you can come to us. And um, and, and depending on how big it is, um, we we work with you to figure out how we can be a support. Well, we, ha we have a strong, uh, we have a strong base uh, that was uh, really founded in part by Bob Sneed and um, Shana Griffin, and it's uh, called the Creative um, uh, Response Network that developed, again, in response to a crisis in, in response to COVID. And, and now there's a, a, a number of us trying to see how do we sustain that energy past COVID and uh, figure out a way to advance exactly what we're talking about, trying to promote uh, a better understanding and recognition of the importance of culture to our economy. But I have to come back to the um, blue-red issue for a minute. I, I can't um, uh, resist saying, <laughs> I have to ask a question that is going to tell you a, a little bit about where I'm coming from on all this, but whatever happened to the Democratic Party? Yeah, you know, um, so, you know, we're nonpartisan. In our so state. Yeah, um, you know, we're nonpartisan. And so typically we stay out of, the, you know, the, the sides and, and in fact have really, um, you know, really been trying to bring to bear the issues, right? Like that no matter what what you are, right? Democrat, Republican, independent, um, which we have a significant number of independent voters in our state. The, the reality is, is that, you know, we're a poor state and, um, you know, and that there are certain politics that, um, that perpetuate that poverty and sustain that poverty. And when are, how do we wake folks up and educate folks about 
um, you know, like what, you know, like you have to stop voting for a party and you have to start voting for your, your interest, your own interest in those issues. And, you know, and I think that, um, you know, what we've been doing is just really building, um, like I said, you know, building a pathway to power for folks that have been historically disenfranchised and not a part of these conversations. And sometimes that that that's being disenfranchised from the party um, or a party. And sometimes that's just being disenfranchised in general, right, from any any number of different, um, you know, groups. And so for us, this is really about how do we create a nonpartisan space um, where we are building voice and people can fight for whatever it is that they're trying to fight for. And so, um, you know, certainly for the for the power coalition, you know, our, you know, our focus is, you know, like how, you know, the, again, those folks, you know, directly, you know, closest to the problem or closest to the solution. And how are we making sure that, you know, we're, I'm smart enough to, to come up with a, a million policy ideas and solutions. That doesn't mean that that is the best answer for that impacted community because we need to talk to them we need to be in relationship with them so that we are actually creating real solutions well I, and, and, and and i i will answer my own question in a way and say that i think that one of the things that's been a problem with the democratic party is that it has not been communicating with people as effectively as the republicans have and, and, and it's ironic that a party that really represented business and the elites was able to convince people at the other end of the, um, of the uh, demographics uh, that they were their party. Well, the Democrats who has traditionally been the party representing people in the middle and lower income uh, brackets um, lost them. And I, I just feel that it's been a messaging issue in part, but it's also been taking people for granted in part and, and not dealing, as you said, with uh, really addressing the, the key problems and policies and solutions. So uh, let's go to problems, policies and solutions because we're going to run out of time. But what, where, where are you going next? You know, so for us, what's next is redistricting. Um, it's been our North Star all along. You know, I think that, you know, when you talk about power, um, you know, in general, uh, redistricting is probably the, the, you know, like I said, the North Star. And so Louisiana has never submitted maps that weren't racist, um, meaning that they met the preclearance and or Shelby test, if you will, um, which was just gutted by the Supreme Court several years ago. So as we embark on this process, you know, we're fighting for a fair and equitable redistricting process and leaning on our legislators um, to do what's right. I mean, it doesn't make sense that we have the second largest black population proportionally in the country, but we have one, you know, congressional house representative that looks like me. Right? Second largest and, who, by the way, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, second we're second, second to Mississippi, second to Mississippi. Okay, go ahead. Um, and so, um, and so that's, you know, but that's that big power, right? Like that there's probably another congressional seat that we already know the state's blacker and browner. We know Jefferson Parish has had an explosion of Latinx and black folks that have moved into the parish, Bossier Parish as well. St. Bernard Parish now has a, um, a large burgeoning black community that could be a community of interest. And what we've been telling people is that I don't only want my big, the big power, like big P, P power, which is the congressional seat, but also the little P power, which is I want my school board district in St. Bernard Parish. I want, uh, you know, I want that, that, you know, for the black communities that live in St. Bernard to be able to have representation on that city council. Same thing in Jefferson, same thing in um, in Bossier. And so making sure that, um, you know, that our leadership actually, you know, like actually, you know, reflects the demographics of the people that they, you know, that they're representing. 
um, and that those folks are actually being able to have a voice in those processes. And so that's what's next for us. We're waiting on the census numbers to come back. But, you know, again, you know, when you look at our congressional delegation, you know, we had five members of that delegation that, you know, that, that, continue to move um, an agenda that is false um, and, and literally denying facts and reality that were proven. On the Louisiana Five. And by the way, yeah. would you do me just a little um, a little rudimentary favor? Uh, I need either a phone number where I can get their phone numbers or I need their uh, phone numbers and emails. I, I personally want to communicate with them. I, I, I know um, I know three of them, uh, not well, but well enough for me to you know, communicate and, and tell them how I feel about what they, what they did, because they're, you know, these, these are not, these are smart people, smart, yeah. informed, educated. And um, what they did is just unforgivable because it just speaks to opportunism and, um, you know, chasing the base is what I call it, as opposed to, it's really nothing to do with Trump. It has to do with the base. Yeah, and, and, it's a, um, and, and power. And, you know, and I think, you know, ultimately power. Yeah. Yeah, that, you know, like basically, you know, like in the face of real facts, right, and and things that have gone through multiple court layers of court, where all of the, these, these lies have been found baseless, um, you know, we're still standing in, you know, we're still standing on these lies. And I think that, you know, what is also unfortunate, and certainly as a Black woman, um, and certainly other voters of color, we, we understand that when they say voter fraud, what they mean is, black and brown people are voting and somehow that that is voter fraud and that's not true and um and we have a right to vote we have a right it is a bedrock of our democracy and we have a right to be heard and you know and i think that we're on the on the precipice of either a civil war or what is probably even more you know they're all the options are scary but you know what i worry about more is kind of what i call policy brutality where they're gonna you know they're gonna legislate at the state level you know, new voting laws that just further suppress the vote. And so we had record- Do you see that coming here? I mean, do you see a move in that direction or- I, you know, unfortunately, yes. I mean, I think that, um, you know, we saw several, you know, we, we saw our secretary of state, you know, kind of, um, you know, uh, you know, literally stomp for Trump, um, you know, um, when he was in Louisiana, um, we've seen, you know, so, you know, like there've been letters that have come out of, from leaders in the office about, um, you know, about, you know, the, about fraud and, you know, and, and again, I think that, you know, we, you know, we're going to definitely see some legislation, um, you know, this year and, um, and we're going to stay, we're ready and, and we're going to stand against it because I think that at the end of the day, what my hope is that we should be expanding early voting. And I think that there is some will across the aisle, both aisles to be able to get that passed. But um, any, anything that looks like ID and other kind of voter, voter suppression, um, you know, we're going to fight with all of our might to make sure that that does not happen. Um, and so, um, and so I do unfortunately see us, um, you know, see behavior, right? Like that's put, I mean, i.e. that, you know, we had to sue, you know, the secretary, secretary of state twice this year. So, um, you know, so, so clearly, um, you know, we've asked issues. Um, I'm, like I said, I'm very proud that the governor stood with us um, in that second lawsuit, which, 
ended up netting us three additional early voting days and the COVID reasons to stand for an absentee ballot in the midst of a pandemic. Like, I mean, we're not even talking about things that, that don't make sense or aren't fair. We're just saying that in a very unhealthy sick state, we shouldn't be exposing folks further to this virus for a state by standing in line for hours trying to vote, you know? Well, I have um, every confidence um, uh, based on history and um, the effectiveness of your organization and, and um, your description uh, during our, our interview today that, that you guys are going to um, kick behind and get your job done and keep it going and expand on it and expand uh, your, your base and, and the people who are gonna work with you. So I wish you all the luck in the world in 21. We sure are going to need it. Yes. Hopefully we will have a happier new year, as I've been saying to everybody, not just a happy new year, but a happier new year. And, um, I, you know, please stay in touch with us um, at WBOK and on my show, Crossed on Conversations, and um, let us know what you're up to. Also, I just want to point out that we do have a newsletter, uh, Crossed on Conversations News. And um, you can uh, be sure to be uh, receiving our newsletter so you see what we're doing, but also uh, send us your stories and uh, we'll certainly um, share them with our uh, readership and our listenership. The radio show runs on Fridays at noon, uh, Crosstown Conversations, and the newsletter usually goes out um, Thursday night. Sometimes we scramble and it doesn't go out until Friday morning, but usually it's out <laughs> on Thursday. And That's thank you so much for what you're doing. No, really thank you. And like I tell folks too. Civic engagement resolution, make a resolution to get involved, Make go to a city council meeting, make a comment, vote. Quite honestly, I don't have to make that resolution because I live it. I definitely live That's it. it. We want no everybody idea. to live it. <laughs> no, we <laughs> so do it. So um, but uh, I, I welcome uh, having uh, more voices like yours um, to, uh, to, to encourage us and make sure it, it's happening. We do voter registration in the arts community, by the way. So we should talk about that yeah. also, um, offline. Should, should all right. So Ashley Shelton, um, all power to you and to your power coalition in the new year. <laughs> Thanks so much. 19, in 19, yeah. listen to me, 2021. Okay. Yeah. Look forward to uh, tracking what you're doing and keep us informed. Will do. Thanks, Jean. I am with uh, one of my favorite marketing people in the city of New Orleans. <laughs> I often introduce my people that way, but I, I do you know, choose to interview folks who I um, have some respect of, of for and knowledge of, and, 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 and Laura Tennyson of one of them. She's, she does marketing for the Contemporary Arts Center, which I have a very long history with from <laughs> the very beginning. And um, really appreciate what you're doing. And, love the program that you all have put together uh, for Martin Luther King this, this winter, um, this January, which is traditionally the year that we um, call attention to his achievements and the importance uh, to our country. And um, you've put together a very uh, ambitious program of, an, of events. And I guess the two um, themes seem to be the intersection of art and social justice. Yeah. And so how our artists really are looking at um, talking about and relating to social justice issues. And secondly, youth. You've really made an effort to engage and present youth. And I definitely want to come to or listen to the youth forum mm -hmm. uh, because um, I'd love to actually involve some of those youth in our survey for our um, 
our uh, investigation of the creative economy. I'd love to hear what the, the young people are saying about the direction we should be going in. So mm -hmm. tell me, uh, let, let's, uh, I don't want to take it one by one. I kind of want you to uh, lead me uh, through what you want to focus on, but um, well, you know, um, it's, yeah. okay. it, we're really excited. Yeah, you've got a very elaborate program. Yeah, I, I, I love the introduction. Thank you for having me on, Jean, um, to talk about it. Um, you know, the title of the program is called Dreaming While Awake. And um, last year, this is our second year doing some Martin Luther King Jr. programming during the, the holiday. And um, uh, last year it was Woke Dreams. Um, that was the name of the title. So we're like, okay, now that we're all awoke, um, what are we dreaming about? I just thought of <laughs> listening to the um, listening to the uh, uh, impeachment hearings today. I'd say there's a few people there who are not awake yet. Right, they're not yeah. awakened, but many of us are, and many young people are. And when you looked at how the country um, erupted this summer um, with, um, with um, you know, social justice protests. It was really being led by young people and young, young, young people, like not just, you know, your college right. students, but like little kids were out there. Yeah. Um, and little kids were dragging their parents out there. And, um, and we took note of that. And um, so this year's um, programming, um, given everything that, that has happened, um, you know, we really wanted to have an incredible event at the CAC, but we knew we couldn't really um, reach those kind of audiences in, in terms of our safety. Of COVID, yeah. mm -hmm. um, so we looked at doing some virtual programming and um, although our, our galleries are going to be open all weekend and it's complimentary complimentary admission um, Saturday, Sunday and Monday from 11 to 5. Um, we have two incredible exhibitions up, uh, Make America What America Must Become, featuring the work of Gulf South artists. Um, and then we also just opened solos last weekend, and that's three artists doing solo exhibitions, um, Shana Griffin, uh, Anna Hernandez, and Sarah Hill. Um, so um, folks will be able to uh, come in and go and see Make America What America Must Become. And on the second floor galleries, we have um, that solo exhibition. So we invite all of your viewers um, to come out. The exhibitions are great. They all, Make America What America Must Become also explores issues of social justice and um, social concerns from artists, art as activism. It's, it's a question that that we are, are exploring this entire year at the CAC. What is the role of artists um, in the community in which they live um, uh, and uh, around the issues that they confront or that their neighbors confront? Um, and is that a place for art um, in terms of advancing the issues that, um, that they experience every day? And, one of our, our artists uh, said, you know, well, artists live in the community and they're citizens. And yeah. so they have thoughts and ideas um, and we can't be afraid to present those ideas in an artistic platform. Um, so, you know, that's what the um, Gulf South artists, um, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, all of those artists that submitted work for that Make America What America Must Become, they're all exploring all kinds of issues that are, occur in their communities through different mediums, through photography, um, sculpture, uh, painting, film, 
Um, so uh, we're really excited about those. The, the art itself on our walls this weekend are ju is just incredible. We invite everyone to come and that's why we removed the, the price, uh, the admission cost. Um, virtually, um, our young people, the CAC has a teen board and that probably dates back to when you were involved with the CAC. It's, it's a legacy. Almost, it came on just a little bit later, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's, it's uh, you know, every year the, the CAC make, puts out a call to local young people who are in, in high school um, and some are in middle school um, to participate in a program where they, they learn about the, the world of art the um, the, uh, the the institution of art, uh, how institutions create programming um, from uh, the board level to the artist level. So it's a really like a curatorial intensive for young people who are interested perhaps in, in, in going into the art field. Mm -hmm. um, so, and we also um, use them as, um, as kind of a, a touchstone around, are, are we doing things correctly? Um, what do young people think about our programming? So they serve a lot of purposes. Um, not only do they learn about what a curated, curator does or what a marketing person like myself does, um, what does a board do in the role of institutions, but they also um, kind of guide us a little bit on, on the vision of young people. And so we're connecting the team, some team board members, um, with artists that are in our Make America What America Must Become exhibition. So they will have a, a, a virtual discussion on Saturday uh, from two to three on Facebook uh, live. Um, uh, uh, three of our team board members will be interviewing um, Derek Woods Mor Morrow, who is in our exhibition, and he's a photographer, an incredible photographer. Um, and Langston Alston, who you may know as well, Gene, he's done a lot of work around the Claiborne um, uh, overpass project. And his piece in, in the exhibition is kind of a, a memory piece about um, the work that he was doing in organizing folks in the Claiborne neighborhood. So it's huge, expansive piece on the wall and it, it, it has the people under the bridge, the conversations that they're having. So Langston will be interviewed by uh, the team board members um, and um, they right. want, really and the great. team board, I want to mention their names, Renee Angara, Justin Lilani and um, Monica Garcia. Um, so they want to, the point of departure in terms of the conversations about how art influences um, democracy and um, because both of those artists are kind of exploring that in their work um, and, um, and they're going to share their impressions of the work with the artists as well. So it'll be a really incredible, um, I think, uh, dialogue. Uh, it's from two to three on Saturday and it's on Facebook Live. And um, we're calling the, the, the name of that type of that um, uh, panel discussion is called and the youth shall lead um, perspective. So wait, uh, the youth shall lead is two to three, right. Two to three and, um, and it's perspectives on art and leadership. Um, earlier in the day from 11 to two on our Instagram, the team board members are going to take over our Instagram and um, and walk you through the exhibitions and give their oh, impressions. Yeah. Great. 
-hmm. yeah, give the impressions of uh, make America what America must become. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so it's a little bit of a docent, but it's more about what their what their um, thoughts are on the art. So that's Instagram eleven to two. Two to three, the virtual discussion um, with with the artists from the Make America, um, and then eleven to five all day, folks can come and um, and see the exhibitions. Um, and I've heard it's really amazing the exhibition, particularly the one I've been hearing about is uh, Shana Griffin's piece. Let me just quickly ask you: we're almost out of time, but um, if you would take your glasses off and I could see your eyes, okay. I would. Fantastic. Okay. Uh, tell me about Shane Griffin's show because I I'm going to have her on later, but I just want you to uh, trigger it. It's an incredible exhibition, uh, displacement cartographies on, um, I'm going to get the whole title wrong, but you can go to our website and, and get the whole expanse of it. But really Shana is a researcher, artist, scholar, and she goes um, this exhibition and an activist and, an activist, and um, it explores the housing policies in New Orleans that have led to the displacement of uh, African-Americans and um, through her vantage point um, as a, a person who grew up in one of the uh, housing developments that, it, that has been kind of erased. Um, and she talks about how there was a convergence of government policy, um, you know, that affected so many people's lives and um, and displaced them. And um, and and then she mirrors that with some art um, artwork that she's uh, created. Um, so you see historical documents, you see maps, you see pictures of um, tenant activists of which one of, one of them was her mother. Um, and so the whole exhibition is dedicated to her mom and the work that uh, many black women did on um, holding on to their housing. And um, it's really incredible. And I encourage everyone to come see it, especially folks from New Orleans, um, because I think it's, it, it really speaks to um, the issues facing us. It's so much, it's, it's even more important now than ever. Because right, than ever. So and she chronicled really it. Having lost their jobs or lost their gigs or lost income right. um, are in danger of losing homes. Right, and yeah. She talks about the eviction crisis and there's actually a piece of furniture in the exhibition um, of, from a, a family who was thrown out in the street. Out on the street. Yeah. yeah, so it's really dynamic, it's historical, mm -hmm. uh, it's artistic, um, it's a, a, a plea, um, you know, so I, you know, I, I would love to hear back from people who go and ex experience the exhibition um, to tell us what they thought of it. Um, I just want to add one other thing though, Jean, that on Sunday we have another, a virtual panel as well um, that's our, our culminating panel. And this one is, is called um, Art and Activism um, in a Democratic Future. Yeah. And it's on Facebook Live and it's from um, 2 to 3.30. Um, right. and I don't think a, I don't think a conference on um, on on Martin Luther King and, and the intersection of art and culture would be complete without Kalama Yasalam, who's in that panel. Yeah, out of yeah. Time, so just Monday. Now, I want to correct that. Um, you, you were perfect. You just rolled right through it. It's an <laughs> incredible program. I really urge people to check in on both the 
uh, live parts in the building as well as the virtual. And, um, and then some of it will continue. So yeah. um, let's uh, make sure I'll, I'll have carried some of this in the um, our newsletter, but let's pick up and do some more on it a little bit later on. Yeah, we'd love to bring Shana to your show. You and video that you want to send my way in a link okay. and we'll uh, air that out. But um, fabulous program and it's um, really congratulations and it makes me very proud. Um, uh, to be associated still with the um, Contemporary Arts Center. Thank you. Thank you. We are drowning in a sea of ignorance. These were the words uttered by then Mayor Moon Landrew in response to some politicos who were trying to push the locating of a second Mississippi River Bridge on Napoleon Avenue. Thankfully, a diverse group of citizens on the governor's advisory committee headed off that idea, leading to the placement of the bridge in the least intrusive pathway, the same corridor as the existing bridge. How apt that phrase is for the era we are living in now, when millions of people cannot see lies for lies and truth for truth. Scholars have written about why people who come to believe in an evil genius buy outright lies, even to the extent of moving to violence against their own government. It has been nothing less than frightening in America of late, not just because of our leaders' falsehoods, but about smart people who know better, who um, have backed up that leader. The Louisiana Five, for example, college educated, smart, Scalise, Kennedy, Higgins, Johnson, and Graves know better. Shame on them for buttressing the lies of the pathological. For what? For their ability to in turn capture the votes of a base that has been bamboozled for too long by not just Trump, but cynical leaders before him. I know many respect some of the work done by Trump, especially the well-off who benefited from his tax policies. Then there are those who felt abandoned by government and they were, as middle-class manufacturing jobs moved offshore um, with whole cities and regions of our country being abandoned. The question is, how do we reach these folks? Why have the Republicans' messages been more effective than those of the Democrats, the traditional party of working people? Maybe it's because the Democrats have not done enough to make sure we have some kind of equity that would enable Americans to live the American dream no dreams, no training for the jobs of tomorrow, no opportunity, all bets are off. Some would say there are 74 million racists in this country that voted for Trump. It is clear from the flags and insignia during the insurrection that many are. But I believe that many who have already or are fearful of losing their jobs don't know how to sustain a decent way of living, then again, all bets are off. So what's to do? We have to vote, get others to vote, and help a woman like Ashley Shelton at the Power Coalition. Check her up online and offer to help. And don't forget about the great program at the CAC from the 16th Saturday through MLK's birthday on Monday, celebrating him, his life, and what he did for our country. Um, so I'll leave you with that. This is Jean Nathan. Uh, for Crosstown Conversations. All right, we are going to move on and take that train.
Just fade. 